0: Welcome to Reinventing Solidarity, a podcast of the journal New Labor Forum and the School of Labor and Urban Studies at the City University of New York. My name is Paula Finn, podcast host and editor of New Labor Forum. Reinventing Solidarity features scholars, activists, and artists on the front lines of movements for social and economic justice. We ask the essential and often provocative questions about race, class, gender, and the role of organized labor and social justice organizations in the work of creating a radically different world, a world with solidarity, equality, and sustainability at its heart. on today's podcast new labor forum columnist sean sweeney joins us from durban south africa in an interview with kumi naidu a human rights leader and environmental activist in 2009 naidu became the first african head of Greenpeace. He then went on to serve as Secretary General of Amnesty International from 2018 to 2020. He's also a visiting fellow at Oxford. Sean, I understand you're doing some work currently in Durban. Uh, Tell us about how you managed to set up this interview with Naidu.
1: Yes, thanks Paula. I was uh, talking to some trade union sisters and brothers here, and I asked where Kumi Naido lives uh, because I knew he was Durban based. And um, they were kind enough to put me in touch with him and Kumi graciously invited me to his home. And I've been impressed with him over the years as a really prominent leader of the climate movement and worked closely with the union. So I thought this would be a good opportunity to do an interview for um, Reinvented Solidarity.
0: Given the importance of the work you and and Naidu have done on international climate change, Sean, I I assume your paths have crossed a few times over the years.
1: Uh, Definitely, Paula. Mostly at the United Nations meetings on climate change that meet until COVID met annually. So I saw Kumi in action in the most important meetings of the past 10 or 11 years in Copenhagen in 2009 when President Obama and Secretary Clinton came, in 2015 at the Paris um, meetings where the Paris Agreement was adopted. so and, and also in Durban in 2011, which is where I'm at now, where Kumi Naida was a big figure in the climate movement and climate justice community. So yes, I've, I've seen Kumi in action and it was a real thrill to be able to sit in the same room with him and, um, and talk to him.
0: Well, Knight, who's got some important and provocative things to say about the role of the the U.S. has played or failed to play in halting climate change. He also takes on leaders in the global south who suggest they should have been, they should be given a pass on environmental destruction as they seek to increase living standards and develop their economies. Let's take a listen.
1: I'm with Kumi Naidu here in Durban, South Africa, close to the coast, and I'm sitting a few safe feet away from Kumi Naidu, who Mm -hmm. I've seen from a distance for over a decade now, not least, I think, in Durban in 2011, there was the COP the Conference of the Parties of the United Nations, where there was major mobilizations around climate protection and a lot of intense discussion. I told CUMI that we're going to talk a little bit about the moment we're in as as a movement, as a climate movement, and reflecting on the fact that it's been five years since the Paris Agreement was signed. It was described in late 2015 as a turning point for humanity and You know, an effort that was going to change the course of history and here we are five years later and it seems that there's the commitments made in Paris, which were criticized by many at the time for not being ambitious enough, are not being met at least by most of the G20 countries. Kumi, you were part of that whole world and probably still are to a very large extent. What's your sense of where things stand now in terms of the, not just the UN process, but the the bigger question of how do we address the climate emergency. And then we can touch on activism and strategy later, but your broad sense of where, where things are.
2: I think it's very important that we answer that question by going back to 2015, in the sense that we have to be very, very clear that 2015 did not deliver a climate solution. That meeting in Paris simply gave us a chance to live to fight another day. That's all it did. It just mm-hmm. gave us an opportunity so, to continue the fight, right? So, for example, we fought really hard to get human rights language, gender equity language, and importantly, review language, which is mm-hmm. building in a review so that the ambition could be pumped up every couple of years. The so, so-called
1: ratchet mechanism. The ratchet mechanism
2: yeah. so that it be aligned to the science. Because let's be very clear, climate interventions and in response to the actual climate science was not adequate before Paris, the Paris Agreement was not adequate to meet what the science was saying, and in the context that we currently uh, currently find ourselves, actually the gap between climate response and climate science is actually getting bigger. So let's be very clear what the climate science is saying. The climate scientists through the IPCC, which is the biggest, most inclusive, scientific enterprise in the history of humanity. If anybody can find something bigger than that, I'd be humble to say, sorry, I missed that. The IPCC tells us in 2018 that essentially we got 10 years to get emissions to peak and start coming down drastically if we are to avert, by the end of 2030, not 2050, uh, if we are to avert catastrophic climate change. Now from that reality check to what our governments are doing, it is a pathetic failure to rise up to meet what the science is saying. Of course, it's also a failure to meet what they, the minimalist commitments they made in Paris, right? right. So, so I'm an optimist, so therefore I want to read this moment in a fair way. On the one hand, there's never been a moment globally where as many citizens are aware that climate chaos, climate catastrophe threatens life as they know it, and fundamentally threatens their children and their children's futures. Right, right. Whether we talk about the United States, whether we, uh, you know, I remember there was this time in 2009 we had like about 30 percent support in the U.S. for climate action. Yes. Today right. we have a majority of people, notwithstanding the climate denialism by Trump and the people around him and the decimating of the. Environmental, Uh, environmental protection, protection EPA, Environmental Protection Agency, and so on. I jokingly, when I was Secretary General of Amnesty in 2018, was invited, was being interviewed by Reuters for feature piece, and I said, actually, Trump has been actually good for the climate movement. Mm -hmm. And the person, what you mean? I said, no, actually, I think Trump, the moment he was elected, there was a real shock for climate activism and climate activists because they said we somehow got a break through this. And that's why, even though at the federal level, there's been absolute lack of movement in the US and, and real mm. blocking, mm. and Trump in his last days might do some bad things in Alaska, where he's gonna give off drilling rights and, and so on. Trail, you know. Yeah. But overall, I think, I'm not sure if it wasn't Trump mm. that we would have got this galvanized movements, whether it's a Fridays for the Future, and, and, and I've seen many offshoots and partners and all in the U.S. and I've met many of those young people, very impressive. I don't think we would have seen the kind of energy that, gosh, we've got to get going. And let's be clear about it. Because, you see, you can't talk about energy democracy globally without talking about democracy and what democracy really means. And actually, today, the United States as a country has done the most immeasurable harm to everything, mm-hmm. whether it's about democracy whether it is about are we, what President Eisenhower warned against, which was the military-industrial complex, right? And this excessive expenditure on military weapons when people in the United States have no food to eat in certain communities, don't have healthcare and so on. And, and, you know, Julius Nerere put it really well, the Tanzanian president, when he said in the 70s, he said, you know, people accuse African countries of being one-party states. Especially the United States. But the United States is also a one-party state. Exactly. They, they, they have two parties that serve the interests of capital and big business. But in typical American extravagance, they have two, two of them. them right? <laughs> exactly. Uh, and so what I'm meaning is if the Democrats won in 2016, would it have been better than Trump? Of course it would have been better well, than well, Trump. They mean, they mean, would it have been yes. sufficient? I don't think the Democratic administration there would have delivered anything substantial because I believe they would have been as pathetic as the
1: Obama administration was on climate. Well, on that point, I've actually just written a piece for New Labour Forum, which is part of the School of Labour and Urban Studies. Uh, It's a leading Labour journal in the U.S. Sort of raising the question, you know, Biden has made a commitment to go back back into, technically the U.S. is not out, but back into the Paris Agreement. And there's a sort of sigh of relief that, oh, now we can get on with it, but we remember You and I will remember in uh, Paris, the sort of the hatchet job that um, uh, the Clinton, as Secretary Clinton and President Obama did on the Kyoto architecture. In other words, a pledge and review, voluntary commitment. I'm not saying it was going to be easy to get a legally binding or a different commitment, but this idea that we're now going to be back on track, it's, uh, you know, it seems to me very seductive, you know, that we can now, the climate's going to be taken care of by the new administration. And I remember some of the things, Todd Stern, who was representing the State Department back then, or representing the White House, I don't recall. He was um, the chief climate negotiator, chief and, and negotiator, and he was a yeah.
2: pathetically bad one. In exactly. fact, he's the only negotiator in all my climate negotiations that the base in the, from the delegates came, pulled us together and said, we need a press conference calling on the United States government and Obama to withdraw the delegate because he's blocking every single thing. And basically the press conference was saying, listen, if you don't want to play, just take your marbles and go home. Yes. Right? Yeah. And, and, and I, that's my position today towards the U.S. I know people say, oh, we can't get a solution. We can't get movement without the U.S. Really, the United States is holding us back on everything on addressing economic inequality, addressing meaningful democracy, addressing the climate question, even basic human rights stuff. Right. I mean, Khashoggi was murdered in the most brutal way, everybody knows it, and the United States government stood up right next to them. So, so, so I just want to be very clear, as a person from the global south, we vest absolutely no energy and faith, sorry, no faith in the U.S. and what the U.S. will deliver. So as far as Biden and the current degree regime go, of course we've sighed we've all taken a sigh of relief. Well, let's see what happens.
1: Well, it's funny, Todd Stern and John Podesta co-wrote a piece in foreign affairs saying the Biden administration will allow the US to resume its global leadership on climate protection that had been so casually thrown away by this uh, no. no the US person. never yeah, exactly.
2: The US can never claim leadership on the climate question. Exactly. In fact if anything you can say I'll go with regard to mm-hmm. Kyoto, right? Whipped up the world and helped us get Kyoto, no question. And then the United States withdrew from didn't even sign the ratify the treaty, right? Exactly. Right? Exactly. So the United States approach to the world is do as we tell you to do, but do not do as we do. Right? Exactly. And that's what US exceptionalism has become. And it's sad that what you've got in the United States today is a system that others have called Inverted authoritarianism, where the very people who will benefit from a policy like healthcare reform are the ones that have been misinformed and lied to to actually oppose it. So you have this weird people who I would consider as people that I fought for for all my life, right?
1: working class people. The working, the working class people yeah. who are
2: voting against their own interests yeah. uh, and so on. And, and, and quite frankly, the, the leadership in the United States. All across different sectors has been pathetic and unless there is a humility and our understanding that actually we're not as great as we thought we were we shouldn't be going around the world teaching people about trade unionism and so on we should get our shit right in our own country <laughs> right uh, and I've been saying that for the last five years in the US mm-hmm. whenever I had an audience there I said guys we're gonna be okay you guys got a problem here right I, I You're, should, yeah. the best thing the United States can if you want to be a good activist don't come and try and help start the energy project in South Africa, you get the most progressive leadership elected in the United States and you hold them accountable. And you set an example that we can look at and tell our governments, right now, we cannot even look at, I mean, even on democracy now, most African countries have a better record in dealing with the transition now than what we are seeing with, with what's happening in the United States. Yes, exactly. So it's really important for people in the United States, even the progressive movement, To be very clear in fact i would make a challenge every u.s person who's being involved in global stuff i can't as a person from a so-called shithole country go to the u.s and organize right it's only american citizens that can do that so if you're talking about understanding how the u.s is letting the world down then what we need now is every american progressive everywhere in the world involved in whatever movements organizations away from their thing get back home we can manage. Really, don't delude yourself that we cannot manage. What we need from America is America to be the most decent, most progressive, most ethical, most human rights, thing, and to model that, right? The problem is U.S. has claimed to be the human rights promoter, the democracy promoter, and so on, and then they set an example that is so disastrously problematic that it undermines democracy And everything else that we've been fighting for. So today we got a situation where the energy democracy question or the climate question is deliberately being divorced Mm -hmm. from the real question, and that is a broken economic neoliberal
1: system. Right? Let's turn. Let's turn to that because one of the things that the climate movement. I want to come back to whether you see any evolution or change in direction. The climate movement. Save that for a few in a few minutes, but. One of the things that comes out, not just in the US, with the um, Green New Deal discourse around uh, Representative Ocasio-Cortez and also Senator Bernie Sanders and others, Mm -hmm. uh, but this is now becoming a global narrative, lots of emphasis on ambition to the point where it makes the argument seems vulnerable to the kind of like, well, how do you get to zero carbon by... You know, in some, in some examples of the Green New Deal, it's like 2030, 20, even 2025 in the case of the UK with the, with the Green New Deal movement there. To what extent, though, does Paris tell us that really leaders cannot control their own political economy? And, if, and to the extent that they want to do, send market signals in order to move investment capital from the dirty stuff to the clean stuff by way of a carbon price or whatever it may be. And those policies have been proven to be completely inadequate in terms of uh, arresting, let alone reversing emissions increases. Can, can the climate movement begin to get more kind of drilled down on what are the major interventions in the economy that are needed in order to turn this situation around? Because calling it seems to me, I've heard political will now for, a, for 13 years, it's the, to call for more tar- better targets or more braver speeches just doesn't seem to be dealing with the fundamental problem that the DNA of capitalism is one of growth, expansion, and you know, growth, basically consumption without end model. And we know, it, and I want to come back to this too, the issues of the Global South around getting people out of poverty. This was very much part of the narrative, wasn't it, of the UN talks up until up until today, which there needs to be room to develop for countries in the global south and the global north should take on the early first phases in terms of responsibility. But ambition, are, are we doing enough programmatically to put forward solutions, do you think, as a movement? No.
2: No, I mean, I think... More and more people are recognizing that we need to realize basically the climate crisis is an economic crisis, right? It is a broken economic system built on a myth that you can run a safe economic system driven by dirty fossil fuel-based energy, even though the science has been warning for decades. That has been silenced and billions of dollars have been spent to confuse public opinion, particularly in the US and Europe, but also elsewhere. And if you look at the moment we are in now, it's not dissimilar to the moment immediately after the global financial crisis. What was needed then and what is needed now is not what we are getting, which is system recovery, system protection, system maintenance. What we needed then and what we need now is system innovation, system redesign and system transformation. And by systems here, yeah, we're talking about economic system, food system, energy system, transport system. Given that we've left things so late, given that the United States in particular and other countries dragged the feet on climate action for so long, we cannot anymore rely on baby steps in the right direction. Incremental tinkering is not going to be sufficient right now. Right? We have to have the scale of ambition for change to equal the scale of the threat that climate catastrophe actually mentioned. So I do not believe we get a climate solution without getting fundamental significant changes in a broken, unjust economy that works for the 1% of people in the world. Mm-hmm. And what I've been saying to people in business, and because I've been in mainstream civil society organizations like Greenpeace and Amnesty, I had access to CEOs of the biggest companies, right? And these companies, you know, when I speak to them, when I used to, it's interesting, they get it conceptually,
1: right? Conceptually. Conceptually, they get it.
2: They accept the science now, but there is still a very, very high level of cognitive dissonance and denial about whether they absolutely have to make the changes now on big scale or not but most of them are hedging the bets that some mystical technological solution is going to emerge and save them. So what they think is, let's just make minimalistic gestures of change. So if you look at the response, the global response to climate change right now, can best be described as rearranging the deck chairs in the Titanic while humanity sinks Mm -hmm. into oblivion. And and we have to be very clear, this is not about saving the planet. The planet is fine, the planet does not need saving. If we continue on the route that we are, we will be gone, the planet will still be. And the truth be said, once we become extinct as a species, the oceans will recover, the forests will grow, and all of that. So don't worry about the planet. (laughs) We have to understand that the fight to avert catastrophic climate change is nothing more, nothing less, than protecting our children and their children's futures. So any parent today, or any grandparent today, who is standing up as Donald Trump is doing and saying, burn, 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 burn uh, fossil fuels, must understand that they are contributing to the death of their children and their children's children, and that's the scale of the betrayal. So if you've got that scale of what is at stake, then clearly, if the economic system has been a biggest contributor to this, then both political leadership as well as activism has to be searching for how do we change this economy. Let me give you a simple example. What is the most powerful number in economics? I would say it's the GDP number. Mm-hmm. right? There's a book by an Italian education minister who's a former colleague of mine in civil society called Lorenzo Firamonte. The book is called GDP, Gross Domestic Problem. The world's, <laughs> nice the world's most powerful number. And GDP is like a is more powerful than Christianity, Islam, and all the other religions combined, it would appear, for econ- economists and for mainstream thinkers. Mm. But what is this GDP? This GDP, if you chop down an entire forest, yeah, it's a tick. It's yeah. a positive thing on GDP. So we've got a measurement, and I can give you many other bizarre. Slave labor, mm-hmm. right? A lot of slave labor, whether it's in the Pacific tuna industry or whether it's in the Amazon cattle industry, is all counted on the positive side of GDP. So if we have a measurement of wealth that is so fundamentally broken and missing, so we have to, people must just recognize it. The GDP was created by human beings. You know, it was not a group of gods that right. came and said, thou shall do GDP. And, and so long as it's something that we created as humanity, we can change it. But the difficulty we have is, and, and we see this within the activist community, is a problem that Martin Luther King put his finger on in the mid-60s very, very eloquently. He was... As he came to the end of his speech, he noted that in the field of modern child psychology, there's a very dominant term called maladjusted.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: He went on to say, now, you know, we all want to be well-adjusted and not suffer from schizophrenia or other mental illnesses. But my friends, I say to you, there are certain things in our world that are so unjust and immoral that good, decent people should refuse to be well-adjusted.
1: Well, I just want to turn in closing to South Africa, We we had more time to talk about it. Uh, we've been fighting in Nomsa for the idea... Uh, NUMSO and SAFTU and other allies here, AIDC and Transnational Institute based in the Netherlands. Um, Trade Unions for Energy Democracy have been put forward a vision of a modern national utility. And of course, in the context of South Africa, the word ESCOM is an epithet. And, and But what we're saying is that the, you know, the, the kind of transition that's needed at a global level requires a global public goods approach, not an investor-focused Correct. approach. And secondly that the model of the antiretroviral struggles around HIV AIDS can teach us something about this because there was basically the destruction of patenting around those uh, those drugs that saved millions of lives when if i remember correctly big pharmaceuticals like Pfizer were trying to you know challenge anybody making those generic drugs in the within the WTO could we not start to say that humans survive on an even larger level? Is it spread here that we need a global agreement on technology transfer that can put the public I first? That. I mean, that seems to be overdue, is it not? It's long
2: agreement? overdue that we treat a whole range of things as global common goods, water, air, the sun, many other things. And this commercialization and commodification of everything, including water, is neoliberalism, the current economic system, gone bad? This is not even just capitalism, right? You know, classical capitalism never thought that things would develop to the extent where such a handful of people are benefiting from the system. Mm. What we add is casino capitalism, just being at the right place at the right time with the right connections and having a little bit of capital and sometimes not even having capital. I mean, you know, you think about it in the old days, you add a logic that people who invested their own capital and took a risk, and a right to get a autonomy. Today, most of the people who are making the most riskiest decisions are not... All the people that put American workers' pension funds at risk in the US in the run-up of the financial crisis, they didn't risk anything personally. They were risking people's pension funds. So you've got a situation in the world where we socialize losses <laughs> and we privatize profit. Yeah, yeah. Let me say to our leaders in Africa right, or, or in the global south, who say, no, we have, we have a right to burn more carbon because others burnt and built the economy. That is not the solution to where we are right now. We have stood as activists with our governments at the global level and fought really hard for the Green Climate Fund, and we have said always there should be common and differentiated responsibilities, right? So there are certain things every country should do, but recognizing the history and so on, the climate negotiations always said rich countries should carry a greater burden including helping poor countries to make the transition without following the same dirty energy path that rich countries follow to build their economies. Now, we've got our leaders who say, no, no, no. If we got coal, we got oil, we got gas, we're going to spend it because they did But who is going to pay the price of that burning? Every African country today is paying a price from climate impacts. We are seeing soil being destroyed. We are seeing sea level rise. We are seeing desertification, we are seeing conflict, we are seeing migration so come on, give me a break how can you say as a leader that just because some idiots in the rich world did a bad thing, we will do the same thing that those idiots did and create an even worse situation and make a bad situation worse. So what we are saying is, let's get those that historically carried a greater burden to support financially those countries that didn't burn their thing for example, practical things. Uh, Norway gave Indonesia $1 billion 2012, in, yeah. in 2012 to say, please, a moratorium for the next five years, no more license to people to cut forests, and you, you're getting a billion, use that to compensate, compensate whatever,
1: right?
2: That is a good example. It's not perfect. It, you know, I'm sure Norway, in the end, got too much of influence. And sure. The way they did it and all that. I'm not saying any of this thing is perfect, but we're not going to find perfection right now, no. right? We've left things too late. So to our leaders in the global South, we say, "Come on, folks, you cannot." And 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 you know they say, "Energy poverty," right? When I met with Felipe Calderon, the Mexican president, after the Cancun COP, I said, "Listen, there are 12 percent of people in the United in in Mexico, who." Have, were, were completely energy poor. They don't have access to a single light bulb. Mm-hmm. They live in rural areas. They are small sizes, small size communities, and so on. If you had political rule, you can take them out of energy poverty tomorrow. Don't think about big grids, big grids, big infrastructure. You could do small micro-solar grids, which are self-containing, can be connected to a larger grid, but for starters, you, know, you put 10 solar panels in one community, you can take those people out of energy poverty very quickly. Mm-hmm. Right? And it can yeah. be done fast. Now let me tell you the other reason why many governments both in the rich countries and the poor countries are so obsessed with big infrastructure energy projects and particularly oil, coal and gas. Because the pipeline for corruption in the the supply chain of corruption
1: Mm.
2: in a renewable energy project is substantially smaller than it's in a oil, coal or gas project. Right? How much you can steal is very constrained because of the nature of how it is constructed. Mm. If you look at the subsidies, what subsidies renewable energy got compared to the subsidies given to the fossil fuel industry over time and even presently? It's minuscule,
1: Mm -hmm. right?
2: So so it's really at a point now where I don't think we can continue in this north-south dynamic. The problem is we have to talk about it because the other thing is folks in the north want to pretend that we're all equal and we don't know. I mean, you could just jump on a plane and come to my country. Yes. I can't do that to the US. Okay. Yeah. I'm treated like shit, mm-hmm. right? Uh, you know, I have to do like a mini thesis to get a bloody visa. And, and that's me with somebody who's got an Oxford degree and got some profile. But it would be absolutely stupid for me to blame you for the fact that you can come to my country without any restriction. And I—that's you didn't determine that it's, it's the geography lottery right mm-hmm. that we live in right and so but what i find is there is a denial because people want to appear that we're all the same and we're all equal we're not mm-hmm. right if if we all if the if, if we don't start from a common starting point then it's not fair right and we need to level the playing field that's what we mean by living so to leaders on our in the global south who, in my judgment, have been pathetic overall on climate. Mm. There have been some stars, right? There have been some leaders who have done exceptionally well. But the most important thing is they are losing opportunity. Because what's going to happen is, you know, people have to realize nature does not negotiate. We can have all these negotiations. Nature does not negotiate. We cannot change the science. We can only change political world, right? And... Mother Nature has been speaking loud and clear over the last five years. Only those who choose to close their eyes, close their ears, close their senses cannot see that we are in big trouble. From Australia to California to Africa to Asia, everywhere we are seeing extreme weather events, records being broken, we're running out of time. The only good news is we have the solutions. We know what to do. It's just a question of political will, and that political will Cannot be simply about technological solutions around energy provision. It has to be about rethinking the very fundamental nature of the unequal, unjust economic system that we have that benefits a handful of people at the top at the expense of the vast majority of people. Not simply at the bottom, but
1: also at the middle. Great. Kumi Naidu, thank you for this interview.
0: Engagement with issues like these forms the basis of the classroom experience at the School of Labor and Urban Studies, where our preeminent faculty and engaged and diverse student body grapple with the most pressing challenges confronting organized labor and working class communities. For more information about the school, visit slu.cuny.edu. To learn more about the podcast and listen to other episodes, visit slu.cuny.edu podcast. And to subscribe to New Labor Forum or sign up for our free monthly newsletter, visit newlaborforum.cuny.edu.